Hey guys, welcome to this episode of the Weekly Dispatch. It's me, I'm Sean, and I'm back here to talk about all the important news that happened from the 9th through the 15th of September 2019. I just got done doing a podcast with Bobby that we're going to put out later this evening or this week, kind of talking about the transition process when you leave the military, how you can enter into higher education. And then we also talked uh, some other stuff, if you're staying in the military, how higher education and that piece fits into your career. But one of the big things we talked about is a Kronos Fit Challenge towards everyone that follows our programming for the CrossFit Open that comes out in just a couple weeks. I do the military prep programming, Bobby does the functional fitness programming, and we have a very differing set of opinions about who will perform the best. I think the athletes following military prep were more prepared and will be more prepared for endurance-based events, and Bobby contends that it's the functional fitness taking the lead. So at the end of the episode, we'll talk about some of the initiatives that we're going to create in order to create some competition between the sets of athletes and pair that with our Kilomoto app. Additionally, we did some fundraising for Team Rubicon this week and raised $500 for the recovery efforts down in the Bahamas. So we're super proud of the organization and the individuals that contributed to that cause in trying to rebuild after such devastating storms. Before we get to the news that happened this week, our podcast, as always, is sponsored by Paragon Recovery. Use the code Cronus15 to get great deals on their products. Paragon Recovery keeps you in the fight through activating your recovery and sleep cycles. And check them out and contact them for even more savings if you're a member of the military community or one of the many law enforcement agencies. Today's podcast will focus internationally on the recent attack uh, in Saudi Arabia on two of their oil refineries, places, things, oil, crude oil. The second news for international topics will focus on Tunisia, uh, the small country in North Africa, and one of the few success stories of the Arab Spring from uh, 2014, 2015. I don't know. Uh, We're going to focus then on the United States. We're going to cover the Democratic debates that happened this week. We are also going to focus on the payouts to Northern California after the 2017-2018 massive wildfires and PG&E's requirements and payouts and then a whole bunch of other suits that are coming. And we are going to talk about the business backlash from a lack of gun reform. We talked about Walmart last week and this week more CEOs are calling on the Senate. In our business slash economic news, we're going to talk about Energy 202, which will have significant impacts on drilling requirements if it goes through the Senate and some of the House bills get cleaned up. But we're going to talk forward about what that means internationally in a market, especially considering the attacks on Saudi Arabia's oil production and what that is going to do to the overall supply in the world. But beyond that, we've got some other fun topics to close out, uh, specifically movies and some sports news that if you're not following, we will catch you up on. Outside of that, let's go.
All right, on to the first international topic, which were the drone attacks in Saudi Arabia. Two installations that produce the vast amount of the country's crude oil were attacked by drones. These drones were suspected to be flown, flewed, droned by Houthi rebels operating in Yemen, supported by Iran. The two drones, or the multiple drones, something like, London Has Fallen-esque or whatever that new Gerard Butler movie seems to indicate. These drones uh, were able to move from either inside of Saudi Arabia or from Yemen itself, but the two installations are 500 miles from the border with Yemen. Uh, The country uh, intelligence as well as United States intelligence believes that these rebel groups have drones which have the capability to move up to 950 miles. The biggest impact, though, on the shutdown and the attacks on the crude oil installations means that there's a potential for even just a couple days that global supply of oil will be down, shifting the price up. Uh, An increase in price would help countries like Iran, who are trading on a very limited scale, to increase their revenue. We go back to why Yemen is in conflict and why the Houthi rebels do not like Saudi Arabia. Look back to 2015, where Saudi Arabia began its coalition against the Houthis, who are Shia. So what ended up happening over the course of some time, uh, Houthi rebels overtook the capital, then tried to take the rest of the country after the Hadi government fled to Saudi Arabia and then began accusing Iran of campaigning and supporting the rebel group. Since then, over 10,000 people have been killed and another 3 million people displaced. The United States actually supports the Hadi government and the Saudi-led coalition along with the UK, France, and China and is providing intelligence and weapons. On the other side, though, because of the inability for the opposition government and the Houthis to control their key areas, you see influences like ISIS, ISIL, AQ, coming in and disrupting efforts. There's also a huge humanitarian crisis because much of the aid that is being flown to the region isn't able to get to the people that desperately need it the most because those locations which have been taken over again by the rebels are doing a poor job to clean up the streets, sewage control, all the dirty trash that was typically taken care of is not being taken care of and there's actually a cholera outbreak. Uh, As of right now, two-thirds of the country don't even have clean water, so managing the sewage is an even bigger problem. The country has seen multiple attacks, both from suicide bombings, uh, separatists, gathering forces in the south. All of this is in retaliation to the Hadi government in trying to install a new regime. More will follow. Obviously, Yemen sits in close proximity to much of the terrible, terrible conditions around the world when it comes to violence in the Middle East and has been for a long time a training center for individuals preparing to go to fight in other very famous Middle Eastern countries, which many of you are familiar with. Uh, More to follow next week for sure. And then in the same regard, on the same tune, within the same pages of the book of Middle Eastern Conflict, and the nature of violence. If you remember, back in 2011, we had the thing called the Arab Spring in which thousands and thousands of people took to streets all over the Arab world to try to create a more democratic state. One of the places where it's actually 
taken and is still there is in Tunisia, where they have a new election coming up today. But it's not gone well for the rest of the world that had the Arab Spring. With the threat of extremism spreading over the area, especially with the rise of terrorism networks that have grown and tried to take places like Syria, Iraq, Afghanistan over, and have come to places like Tunisia to harbor resentment towards democratic conditions. It's been very hard for the country to sustain its voting capabilities and promote a more free and fair uh, majority representing them in their governments. So the country of Tunisia obviously has gone through a very radical change in history going all the way back to French control and then it's only had two rulers since 1956. Its close neighbor Egypt last year tried to have a election after their Arab Spring and what really weird uh, any good candidate that might have had a chance of winning was arrested or forced out which isn't really weird at all given the influence that the individual who won uh, had, and that was Abdul al-Sisi. He won, and things in Egypt aren't going great. Anyway, Tunisia's influencing countries like Algeria and Sudan, who are actually having their own awakening. In fact, Algeria has been, for 30 weeks now, protesting their leader to step down. Sudan has had a small win with Omar al-Bashar signing an agreement to hand over some of the power. But the bigger issues are going to come down to economics now if you're an individual in that country. Tunisia saw a lot of its citizens leave the country to go fight all around the world in some of the jihads that were going on, uh, being influenced by individual groups like AQ or ISIS, and now they're coming back. And they're coming back to a time when unemployment's at its highest, and the International Monetary Fund is cutting loan programs significantly in the wake of some of the global money supply. And this is just going to impact the country because they're going to receive less aid. So they have to do a better job as a government to promote a, an internal structure which is going to have increases in employment and people are going to be able to get paid. Otherwise, you're going to see these foreign forces come in on the extreme side and say, if you take over Tunisia and implement our extreme government, then you're going to have a more social communal event uh, just with a certain flair for extremism. But I will report back to you guys next week and let you know exactly how the vote turned out. It's not going to matter who gets elected so long as the vote is a success and they can continue putting this down in the history books as a positive for that country as they continue towards what is hopefully a very bright future. All right, so now on to our America's news. I want to kick off our news segment for the Americas with talking about 9-11. We just hit the 18th year anniversary of the attacks, which killed nearly 3,000 people from D.C. to New York City, and then the individuals that forced a plane down, preventing another catastrophic attack in Pennsylvania. And... This date was the, you know, one of the first years in eight years that I, I'm not in the Army anymore, and it made me think back to how impactful was that attack on my formative years, and then now generations of Americans have been born that weren't even alive uh, for those attacks and don't really have any idea of the impact that it's going to have on an older generation. 
when I watch videos now of the towers coming down and living so close to ground zero here in New York City, I get really emotional. I, I never got that emotional when I was younger because I think I was able to just look at it as an event. But the older I've gotten, the more sad that event makes me because when you can look at the, the loss of life and not just the individuals that were lost, the impact on the thousands of families and the exponential rise in the people that that left a lifelong impact on, it's just astounding that something that in the, you know, small footnote of history might not seem that large from, you know, a yearly scale of individuals that are killed or lost in events, but will have such a lasting impact on democracies around the world as we fight our way through different extreme elements and trying to promote an American uh, set of values as we're now defining our own and new values within the country. So back to 2001 with the attacks, it was my parents' 20th year anniversary. My dad at that point had 20 years in the Army. My mom had just retired a couple years before. And my dad had a meeting at the Pentagon that morning to go talk to his old boss as he was about to retire and he was looking to stay within a government capacity, a government job. That morning, my dad said, hey, I'm going to push the interview uh, to later because it's our anniversary. We're going to go up to the canals in Maryland and we are going to bike around. And so I, I took the day off and I remember specifically sitting upstairs uh, in their bedroom watching on one of those TVs that's like three feet by four feet deep by two feet high. And for some reason, NBC Today was on because my parents loved that show. And I think it was Matt Lauer and Katie Kirk were on. And then they just cut to a segment about the weather. And then you see this impact immediately on the screen. And I remember running down to talk to my parents and say, I think a plane just hit the the Trade Center. And so we, we turn on our little TV that we had in the kitchen and everyone's thinking, oh, it's just probably a Cessna because we had never, I'd never been to New York. I had no idea how big the Trade Centers were. And if you haven't been, I think it's really hard when you look at a small screen and you just see a bunch of black smoke and some fire and debris coming out to really get a great understanding about how massive this gash in the building was. And then we continue watching and all of a sudden another plane strikes, except this time, because the screen is capturing the images, you see this plane just plow through the other tower, and now you know something weird has happened, and then shortly thereafter, you hear uh, about what happened at the Pentagon. We lived 25 minutes from the Pentagon, and my dad didn't know it at the time, but his old boss was killed in the attack, uh, in the same room, same location that he was supposed to go and have been interviewing that morning. And for me, I didn't really didn't put any of that together until I went to the Pentagon and I was walking around and we were just taking a look at the damage uh, because we went there and we wanted to go help out and, and see what was going on. And to think about my dad being there, like just... It made me want to go and do something different um, with my life at that young age. I had no idea what I wanted to be when I grew up, but at that point, I knew that I had to do something that if I was able to one day, uh, you know, I could, I could be proud of. Uh, so I ended up signing an ROTC scholarship a couple years later. Um, 
much to the chagrin of my parents who, with the wars going on in Iraq and Afghanistan, while they had served, um, were still worried about, you know, their own son going over. But since then, every single year that September 11th has rolled around, it's left like a bigger impact on me because going back and forth from Afghanistan multiple times and seeing either the difference or the stagnation in our policy and always coming back, you always just think that not much has really changed since I was there at first in 2013 to when I was just there a little over a year, year and a half ago. And you want to think that what we're doing over there is eliminating a future attack and a future mass burial of almost 3,000 people, and we're still only being able to account for about 60% of the remains that have been found, and something so horrible and so tragic. But the bottom line is, uh, I've used 9-11 and the proximity to the World Trade Centers to really identify what I want to do in my life. And, and the big thing, and I think Bobby and I talk about this a lot, is finding what makes you happy, finding what makes you passionate, because at no point did anyone who woke up that day, except the 19 terrorists who hijacked those planes, have any idea that was going to be the last time that they told their family they loved them, that they watched a ball game the night before, that they had their last meal. And while when you're younger, that's hard to really conceptualize, the more you meet people that have an impact on your life and then you find out you lose them, the greater of an appreciation you have for that life and for yours, no matter what stage of it you're in. So for this 18th anniversary of September 11th, I would just charge all of you listeners to go out there today, right now when you're listening to this. Push play, throw me off the airwaves, listen to a song that makes you happy first. Have something today, eat something today that makes you happy. Do something today that at the end of the day you can write down and you can tell a story to someone you love and just share that moment and that experience. Because it's those experiences that if tomorrow something happens, that loved one is always going to have the memory of you telling them about whatever great thing you did that day or what made you really happy. Because if, at the end of it, if it's not happy, what are you doing with your life? But we're going to step away from that. Um, you know, always really grateful of all the thousands of men and women who signed up after September 11th and dedicated their lives to the selfless service of serving in the military or serving as a firefighter or a policeman towards public service, and especially to those that signed up and as a result of these attacks and our policy to go over and take care of the future threat are, are, are not with us anymore today. So really grateful for all the individuals that have come before me in the military that are still in the military after and that will always be there to defend the United States of America. All right, so back to the regular U.S. news. This week we had a three-hour debate with the Democratic primary. Uh, we had 10 candidates. Count them if you want with me. I'm probably going to miss someone, but we had former Vice President Biden. We had Senators Warren, Sanders, Booker, Harris and Klobuchar. We had Mayor Pete Buttigieg. We had Julian Castro. We had Representative O'Rourke. And we had Mr. Yang. Big topics for this week's debate. Obviously, since we didn't have a gigantic field of 20, although the next debate for October looks like we're going to have 11, so we're going to have to have two nights, which is just too, too many. 
topics were China, talked a little bit about Afghanistan, Social Security, school affordability, and then the big one was with gun control. Uh, coming straight out of the atrocity that happened in Texas, Beto O'Rourke took a pretty big moment in the debate to talk about taking away all AK-47s, which is a talking point for many individuals that talk about gun rights. But after witnessing his hometown go through that, you could understand how an individual from that point would say, we can do something better to curb gun violence and prevent the death of another 22 somewhere else. The big one that people talked about was health care. Vice President Biden talked about his plan, which he estimates would cost $740 billion, and then compared that to Senator Sanders and Senator Warren's plan, which, if you've not heard, is $30 trillion, and that's over the course of 10 years. So $30 trillion. That's, uh, that's a lot of cash over 30 years. Excuse me, 30 years would be a lot better than 10 years. That's a lot of cash over 10 years. But what that means is probably an increase in taxes, but that's something that neither Senator Sanders or Warren wants to talk about. They also had some other disruptions that they want to throw into government, and I think this is an interesting talking point. We have that filibuster rule. You have to have 60 votes within the Senate to get a bill passed. Now they're trying to make a new filibuster rule to get down to 51 votes, and some of the individuals from the Senate on the stage argued that if we got rid of a filibuster rule and just went to a majority for voting purposes in the Senate, you would have much quicker turnaround on getting stuff like gun bills and health care through Congress, which would eliminate some of the stagnation that we've seen and the polarity that would exist. Maybe we go back to actually talking between the aisles. We also had some interesting, uh, interesting uh, topics that were also brought up. Uh, O'Rourke talked about a reparations bill. It's called the 1619 bill. It's supposed to be when the first slaves were brought to the United States. Although some argue also that we should have a bill that looks into investigating it. At the end of the day, many of the Democratic candidates believe that something should be done so far as uh, reparations policy, but no one has come out yet with a good answer. And speaking of not a good answer, no one really had a good answer for China and the trade deals. A lot of people were poking fun at the president for his inability to get a deal done since he was master of the deal, quote unquote. But when pressed for exactly what they would do, there wasn't so much of a deal to be made with China, more deals to be made with the American public, the American people, and workers and programs to promote an American type exceptionalism and not needing China for its goods. No one really came out with any good substantive answers, which was kind of disappointing uh, watching, especially when it was three hours long and I thought it was going to be over after two. They also talked about school affordability. And then obviously with the interest that we have here, Afghanistan, and when to bring soldiers home, many were of the mind that we should just bring them home now. Others thought that an enduring presence there, similar to Iraq, might eliminate some of the vacuum that has been caused. However, the big difference with this debate is no one seemed to be attacking specific front runners within the Democratic primaries. That is, the questions that were posed to individuals on stage weren't, hey, Senator Sanders believes X, Y, Z. Oh, uh, Mr. O'Rourke, can you say why you don't support this? And what that does is, is it creates way more infighting. So if we just have general topics that are being proposed to candidates to talk through, that might naturally come out, but it doesn't make it appear that there are definite front runners. There definitely are. 
especially when it comes to timing, because midway through the night, the speaking roles and the speaking abilities uh, was drastically uh, separated between the top of the timer and those at the bottom of the timer. So up at the top, you had Vice President Biden, followed by Harris, Warren, Booker, uh, and then it kind of just had a runoff from there. But the very last uh, speaker was Mr. Yang, who wants to give $1,000 to every American. He wants to start a policy now to do that for 10 families to try to get a gauge as to what that might look like on a larger scale. We'll prepare for the next debate coming in a couple of weeks. Um, but until then, they will surely take some stops. If you have an opportunity to go see one of them talk, I would go bring some questions if you agree or disagree with their politics. Just get out there and be a part of the vote. All right, good news for some of the individuals in Northern California that were plagued by terrible wildfires in 2017 and 2018. And it's come out that PG&E, the giant utilities company, is about to pay out a huge settlement worth $11 billion uh, for fires that were caused up near Windsor, California in 2017 and then that campfire last year in 2018. The estimate for the $11 billion was based off of insurance company claims and were supposed to cover about 85% of the claims. Although those companies sought $20 million, or excuse me, $20 billion originally, uh, PG&E went and declared bankruptcy and is entering Chapter 11 reorganization. So they've got that suit they've got to contend with. They also gave a billion dollars to local governments, 18 of them, to help with the recovery process, but they are still facing a third suit. This one's from individuals, and this one is going to be a class action lawsuit. Individuals that want to buy into this would have to consider whether or not the costs of going to court and potentially winning on their own against PG&E is worth the risk of losing if they can't actually say what elements led to the destruction or what conditions were in their area. But if they join a class action, there is the likelihood they might see, receive a less payout, but a higher chance of winning. And then during an instance like that where there is a large payout, that money will most of the time go to uh, the, the lawyers and those creating the contracts because uh, individuals don't always have the capability to hire lawyers for something like this. Um, so what they'll do is they'll sign contracts which provide 20 to 30 percent of everything that is earned to go to those law firms that are representing them. So that's something where some law firms make some money, um, which is really unfortunate because the money's supposed to be going to the individuals who lost everything and entirely had their homes destroyed. I was up in Northern California this past summer and driving through and the devastation is still there. The landscape is completely charred and you're driving through wine country and you just see these gorgeous lots and homes. And on one side of the street is a burned down, now overgrown parking lot. And on the other side of the street uh, are homes that, you know, suffered significant smoke damage that, you know, had to pay and are still waiting for individuals to come and, uh, you know, clean up. So it's going to be pretty bad. There's also been a big issue with the destruction, especially with underground wiring and now pipes now uh, being uh, corroded and having other elements within the water that are getting people sick. This is going to be probably not as big as the Newark or Flint, Michigan crisis, but definitely look for that uh, coming out in the next couple months uh, with the cleanup process and the class action coming. Following up last week's report on the Walmart CEO, 
banning the sale of some guns and trying to prevent uh, concealed carry from his stores. 145 CEOs are calling on the Senate to pass a better gun control measure. CEOs from Airbnb, Yelp, Dix, and Royal Caribbean joined the letter that was sent. You can go look that up online. But they want to end private sellers uh, who are currently not required to do background checks. If you go to another gun store and you purchase a gun, you have to go through background checks. But the biggest threat to people is private sellers who are not required individually to go and conduct background checks. We've got a couple of House bills that are competing for votes. Now, one wants to limit uh, when you can purchase a gun to a three-day, the other to a 10-day background check for turnaround to slow down the process of purchasing firearms until you can confirm who is actually going to be using or procuring that weapon. And the NRA is not going to be too pleased, but President Trump is actually coming out and says that he wants to do stronger background checks. It's unsure how that is going to impact both the House and the Senate. Uh, Mitch McConnell says that regardless of what comes from the House, it still has to get back through the Senate. They have to go back to committees if there's any challenges, and then it has to go to the president. So there's still a very long way before we get things done. And we're on the topic of the House right now. Uh, Energy 202 was just passed. It's a series of bills. And what that do does is it's supposed to rebuke uh, Trump's efforts at drilling, which he opened up in 2017. The House has currently passed bills banning oil and gas drilling in federally controlled waters, uh, specifically targeting the Gulf and Alaska. Back in 2010, we had the largest spill in the Gulf of Mexico at the Deepwater Horizon. So some of the bills that have come through voting with a, a positive yes, let's ban it. We've got a 238 to 189. Another one is a 248 to 180. So a decent margin within the House. And that has some Republican support, especially those that are down on the Gulf Coast that remember the impact to the economic capabilities of an entire population because they could only, as far as that drilling uh, was concerned, and then again with uh, the Exxon Valdez many, many years ago, you can only assess liability to what is foreseeable. And those individuals would primarily be the commercial fishermen. So the individuals that were affected uh, by a drop in tourism, or like restaurants couldn't directly go after and receive money back from BP or Exxon. You know, this is just a, another really bad uh, break in the chain of responsibility for companies when things like this happened. Uh, some are against uh, this policy because uh, like Representative Gosser from Arizona thinks it's a gift of Vladimir Putin. And we talked about the oil markets earlier, but what ends up happening is places like Russia, which have state-owned um, energy companies, this just makes it easier if they produce more oil and we're out of the oil business or we're not producing oil, then all of a sudden they're going to reap the benefits and that's going to in turn increase their military output because they have more money. Uh, not looking at it really from a global kind of humanitarian, I don't know, what would you call that, a wateritarian? It's not, it's not humanitarian, it's, I don't know, a, a global good and making sure that our waters are clean. All I know is that Aquaman would be super pissed. I mean, like, super, super pissed. And I don't want Jason Momoa getting after you, especially if someone fat shames him, which recently happened on a side note. Someone fat shamed Jason Momoa because he doesn't have, like, an eight-pack anymore. He has, like, a four-pack. I don't know how you can shame that man for that. Or fat shaming Thor. I just found out that someone fat shamed Thor. Oh, yeah, Robert Downing Jr. as his character, you know, Iron Man. 
I didn't know that was a problem in a movie that you could fat shame as a character in a movie and then get called out for it in real life. But anyway, that happened. Uh, we're going to follow up uh, next week, I think, with some of the resolutions that are coming through the Senate. And so we can compare exactly what is going on and what is not going on. But that kind of breaks down the talk for our economic slash U.S. section for this week. All right, that's going to wrap it up for us this week. Yeah, you can stick around. We're going to cover a couple more topics, uh, a little bit more fun, especially with some movies that are coming out. Uh, big ones that we're looking forward to are Taika Waititi's follow-up to what we do in the shadows with the next feature called Jojo Rabbit. It's supposed to be really funny. It's about a young German lad who's growing up in Nazi Germany. Uh, his mother's played by Scott Johansson. They are hiding a Jewish girl, and he has a best friend. That best friend is an imaginary figure named Hitler. Taika Waititi's playing Hitler. The guy from New Zealand is playing Hitler. Uh, it looks pretty funny. He plays a manic. He's crazy. Uh, I think it's going to be a, a very funny movie. Uh, Taika is great, uh, and it's got a huge and great cast. Following up last week, especially with ESPN, if you've been watching, Antonio Brown, uh, who was recently not charged but uh, an individual brought a charge against him in civil court for rape. Uh, actually played today with the Patriots and scored a touchdown. I think he had like 64 yards. Most of the week, people were talking and debating whether or not he's been put on the exempt list by Roger Goodell until this claim down in the Southern District of Florida was handled. The more news that came out today about AB was the fact the woman that was claiming the rape, uh, this isn't going to criminal court where you have to prove beyond a reasonable doubt that the rape occurred, but in a civil court, you just have to have the preponderance of evidence. Um, she also tried to settle with him out of court for $2 million, to which AB responded in the negative. And I mean in the negative, in the most negative text that you could ever see. I don't know what this is going to do for the Patriots' legacy. Um, it doesn't lend any good karma uh, to guys like Roger Goodell, who have had a history within the NFL of not handling instances of violence against women very well, especially with like, you know, one to two game suspensions. And in this case, uh, not doing anything at all, but it's difficult because in the last week uh, was when this case come up, came up because she, the woman told uh, AB that by this last Sunday, if he hadn't settled, they were going to bring it public. And that's exactly what happened. We'll see what happens. Back to the open competition for CrossFit. Again, it's me against Bobby. Team Sean, Team Bobby, Team Military Prep, Team Functional Fitness. Boo! Boo Functional Fitness! It's great. Follow Functional Fitness, follow Cronus Fit. But if you're doing the open, we're going to start the hashtag Cronus Fit. We'll come up with something catchier like Cronus Fit, CrossFit Open. So you really have to make a long ass title. But we're going to come out and we're going to create uh, workouts on the app for Kilomoto. And we're going to track which of you athletes are competing. Uh, if you beat Bobby and you finish in the top five this year on the Cronus Fit Open, uh, we're going to send you free shit, including shirts, stickers, some unreleased Cronus Fit socks that are currently sitting uh, in a box in my closet that I'm just begging to put online and have someone blast when they beat Bobby. I myself am just hoping it's a long endurance event 
so I can put Bobby in the pain cave because I know if it's anything else, it's going to be very difficult for me to beat that animal. And if you've been doing his programming, he's going to prepare you very well for that. So maybe take some bang workout, pre-workout. Bobby and I do coffee. Maybe I'll ramp it up just a little bit just to try to get another leg up on the man. But I don't know. You guys tell me what you think. Uh, Tune in for Brain Body Bobby, Bobby's podcast on health. Uh, This week, he's going to talk about some program. He talks about mental health a lot and physical health. We're going to release that joint podcast coming out. We'll talk about transition. You can always find us at Kernisfit on the Instagrams uh, and Facebook or hit us up at HQ at Kernisfit.org for all of your questions pertaining to our programming or opportunities that are available within Kernisfit. I appreciate you guys listening. Go volunteer. Go be somebody. Rangers of the way. Have a good one.